Welcome to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, my name is Christian Saez Flores. I am a second year peace studies grad student in the Keough School of Global Affairs program. And today I will be with your host in this new episode of the CrocCast. Today with me, I have Mirza Monterroso. Hello, hi. And Isabella Fassi. Hi, everybody. I met these two incredible women while I was working as an intern at the Missing Migrants and DNA program at the Colibri Center for Human Rights. This center is located in Tucson, Arizona. From here, Colibri works in solidarity with the families of the disappeared to find truth and justice through forensic science, investigation, and community organizing. All of this work is powered by small staff with limited resources, but their mission is incredibly important. To talk more about their work and impact, I would like for Mirs and Isabella to start us off by telling us who they are, their role in the center, and how they arrived to work in this field. Let's start with you, Isabella. Thank you, Christian. Thanks for having us. This is a really great opportunity. Uh, my name is Isabella Fossi, and I am a grad student at the University of Arizona. So I came to Tucson on a fellowship to study um, Latin American studies in public administration. And that was uh, how I was able to start working at Colibri on a very limited basis. So I started in September 2018, um, and I've worked mostly on the Missing Migrant Program and DNA Program. Uh, with Mirsa, so I think my official title is uh, Program Assistant for the Missing Migrant and DNA programs. Thank you, Isabella. Mirsa? Thank you, Christian, and thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Mirsa Monterroso, and I am um, originally from Guatemala. I moved to the U.S. in 2016, and um, a little bit of my background, I work in Guatemala as a a forensic archaeologist since 2006 until basically when I moved here, uh, working with the uh, people who are uh, who were victims of the genocide there. So that has been like the base for my work here. Then I uh, moved to Tucson to start working at the Colibri Center in 2016. And as the missing migrant and DNA program uh, director. And um, that's how I started with my experience with families there in my country and uh, expanded to a subject that I didn't know much about, uh, but I knew about the disappearance and uh, people missing. Thank you. Thank you both for sharing with us. Now, Mirza, can you tell me more about the Colibri as a whole? and why it is necessary to talk more about the migration crisis happening now at the U.S.-Mexico border? Yes, so um, Colibri basically was born of the need of uh, the increase of deaths at the border. Uh, since the year 2000, uh, the numbers just start uh, raising like uh, and without precedent. So uh, it started with uh, or as a bond, as an internship program, uh, as an internship with the director, former director Robin Reineke, working with the doctors at the FEMA office of the medical examiner, and then uh, it's just start receiving dozens of uh, 
missing persons reports and cases there. So uh, it started uh, being the need for something more formal and uh, until 2016 when the DNA program started, like at that point it was about uh, 1,000 people unidentified there. Uh, so it needed, uh, and the only hope for these cases to be solved is DNA. So that's how uh, something bigger like the DNA program start, like the, with the need to contact and reach out to all the families and provide their DNA so they can be compared with the DNA of the uh, people unidentified. Uh, then uh, it's very important because this is a silent crisis. Like uh, it's incredible that even here in Tucson, not much people know about uh, what is going on at the border. That people are being are being found there every week, and people are being uh, are losing their lives at, at, as we speak. So it's uh, it's just incredible for us to have like the 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 huge amount of uh, crisis talking to the families, and also to know that nobody it's quite aware of whatever is going on there and how it's this impacting so many lives and so many families. Thank you, Mirza. Now, Isabella, following Mirza's words, uh, why do you think that organizations like Colibri ended up being necessary to exist? That's a good question and a complicated one, I think. So I won't go too deep into the history because I think there's a lot of really great Uh, resources that people can look at for more information. But essentially what happened in the 90s, right, was the U.S. shifted its border policy to a heavily militarized approach. So in different local policies like Operation Hold the Line in El Paso Juarez and then Gatekeeper in San Diego, Tijuana, the U.S. government started to sort of close off the urban, traditional, and safer ports of entry where people would cross without incident. And then because of those policies and then also increasing the number of boots on the ground of Border Patrol agents and these um, increase in sort of militarized technologies and surveillance, all these things combined to funnel people who are migrating into the more dangerous areas, remote dangerous areas like the Sonoran Desert here in Arizona. So I would say we wouldn't exist if those policies hadn't come into being. And, and it's a response to that, to the consequences of those policies and the very real human costs that they have. And yeah, we're definitely part of this legacy of border activism generally, Um, different organizations that work on the ground throughout the borderlands, both to help migrants and then respond to, to the crisis. Thank you, both of you, for being part of the solution, too. Hey, Isabella, can you tell me what does uh, your program do specifically to address this issue? Yeah, so with Mirsa, Mirsa works most closely um, with the forensic anthropologists at the medical examiner's office. So the Missing Migrant Program is essentially trying to build data on missing persons cases so that that information can be compared against the um, information that the forensic anthropologists at the medical examiner's office have. What I do more than anything is communicate with families to take missing persons reports and work with Mirsa to support her in doing that and then also provide ongoing accompaniment to families throughout the search process, provide them with other resources, 
and then offer them different ways to search, for example, the DNA program. That's most of what I do. And Mirsa sort of has a, I don't know if she wants to comment on her role. It's, it's a lot broader. She does a lot. Mirsa, can you, do you want to tell us what's your work? Yes, sure. Thank you. Basically, what I try to do, what I try to accomplish there is to try to keep up with the cases and try to see if any cases that are coming to the PIMA Office of the Medical Examiner have any coincidence with the with the missing persons reports that we have or any clues, any like physical details or any uh, identifications uh, that can point to a case or try to follow up with the questions for the, uh, of the doctors to, to see if this person can be. Unfortunately, many of the cases need uh, to go through the very long and very uh, painful process uh, of DNA, which takes a year for the families to get answers. Uh, but other cases can be solved, and that's basically what we try to do uh, with Isabella to try to find out if uh, there is any other way, like if there is fingerprints or if there is any other way that the, the cases can be solved uh, faster so the family can start uh, their briefing process. So that's one, and then we uh, get to a hard part of our work to try to, to, to talk to the families and uh, provide them with the news and follow up with them. Sometimes we have to help a little bit with the next steps of the process and to contact them with consulates or trying to just be there with the families until they, they are in the, at the end of their process. Thank you, Mirsa. This work is not without its challenges. We've uh, talked before about uh, how uh, we have like internal challenges, but also external challenges. But now I wanted to ask you on how every migrant situation is different. What do you think is the biggest challenge for your work and knowing that each individual case is gonna be different to the previous one? I think from the position where I'm working, the hardest part is um, this generalized impotence, like this feeling of the limitations that that family members experience and friends of the missing experience, like they often express that they want to go to the place where the person was last seen or was last heard from, but they have all of these obstacles that prevent them from doing so, which if they're in the US, it might be questions of um, immigration status. If they're in another country, it might be because they can't travel to that place, right? So I think, the biggest challenge for me is often this navigating the that impotence and like being a support for families and friends of the missing and giving them all of the options and resources that we can. Um, but then having to say, and that's all, that's all we can do. Um, and it's just this question a lot of times of waiting. So navigating that I think for me is the hardest thing because families and friends of the missing want to do everything that they can, but they're often prevented from doing things that might make the process happen faster or um, doing everything that they can to, to find that person. So I think for me, that's the hardest part. Thank you, Isabella. I think that one of the most pressing things that I ever had while I was doing this internship, it was this feeling of never being prepared. 
but also knowing that we were doing as much as we can to help this to help these families. For sure, every one of us has different ways to cope to cope these uh, feelings. But I want to know, Mirza, what are your favorite tools to cope these feelings? Yeah, that's a hard one because uh, it is uh, kind of strange, but kind of working helps a lot. Like keep working and I like, keep just uh, doing as much as we can. Like um, going as far as we can with each case helps really definitely. And uh, feeling like this team uh, support, like seriously, like uh, having Isabella and the team is kind of the best thing that can be because I feel like there is uh, somebody that maybe we don't talk every day, but we are just so connected. So it, it feels like a team, a partnership, like it's, it's, it's great. And of course, my family uh, tried to spend a little bit of time with them and, and just, I think this, I always have thought that this, uh, that this job uh, make me realize how, how lucky our lives are. I mean, coming from, from, from Guatemala and seeing other families from those countries that are just uh, struggling so much. And you get to realize that you are in a position that you can, uh, really um, try to do and try to communicate and connect with them in, in a deeper way, it, it helps a lot. And knowing the context, I think it does uh, help me see the bigger picture and just to, just to connect with them. Easy is to see the, the type of uh, teamwork that you've built with uh, Isabella. And um, I think that you're doing a wonderful job here at the Colibri. And um, okay, it's pretty much inevitable now for us to talk about our work within the context of the global pandemic. Can you tell us how COVID impacted your work? Also, what was the direct impact you perceived on the migrants and how the border policies were affected too, Mirza? Yeah, I think it has been uh, probably personally the hardest part is to not being able to separate work and life. Like uh, I'm working at the same place where I live and I cannot like uh, switch as easier. For the impact in general, like not being to connect with the team too is a bigger, uh, a big issue. Um, we try to work at uh, their offices as much as we can and we do uh, but we are also trying to protect ourselves so uh, a big impact in our work is has the ability to travel uh, they could off that so it's very hard to even uh, go and see the families uh, try to collect them we all collect their samples we are always trying to see them in person because it's easier and, and builds more trust uh, now we are working um, remotely the DNA program. So it's hard because uh, we used to travel to uh, other countries. So it, it makes it very difficult and, and it makes it really hard to manage the anxiety of the families because we, they quite understand, but also it's, it makes even harder the whole process of waiting. It has changed a lot because before we, we, we were working and thinking that probably these uh, they were at the detention centers and we were trying to look for them there. Uh, 
uh, unfortunately, that's a very small chance now or not of, that they are going to be in detention because uh, they are just uh, send, um, deporting them immediately and just dropping them at, at, and not even to ports, like formal ports, just to the border, to the line. So that's putting their lives in risk. They are just uh, being deported and, and even people from other countries, not just Mexico. So it puts them in a great risk because it's easier for them to just attempt to cross back while they are weak and they are sick and they are uh, tired and they don't have any money to try to uh, to go back to their country. So they are not being sent to their country. Therapy. So they're putting in a position that they have to come back here. And we have had uh, cases of people who have been tried for three, four times uh, to cross until they are finally found dead. Or we have cases of people who have been waiting for a uh, court to see a judge in Mexico that have been waiting for eight, nine months. So they, they can wait anymore so they have to cross and they die here so it's like uh it's a very different dynamic and it's just scary like everything it's just changing and evolving in more deadly ways to have people put their lives at risk and to just and, and i think this is the most hopeless because we cannot even basically we don't expect to find them in detention which is the only other like kind of good way that we can fight them. Like it's, it's, it's just sad that we actually feel relief when they are in detention because that means they are alive and they are not in the desert waiting to be found. Isabella, do you want to add something? And also, I, I don't think Colibri really as a organization, we don't have a lot of information about, um, like we don't, we ask people families sometimes why their um, family members came, but it's not the center of our work, right? We're not necessarily focused on research, but I wonder too, I've talked with a lot of families who have expressed the, because of COVID, right? The people are losing their jobs, people are losing work. Um, and that creates this really difficult situation where I wonder too, to what extent the crisis is um, contributing to this anxiety and, and sort of uh, increasing stress and impoverishment that is then driving people to come who might otherwise not have. Thank you, Isabella. Now I want to ask you, uh, with the political environment constantly shifting in the US and with the country being in the wake of a transition of power, How do these change affect how do these changes affect your work? I think it's really hard to say. I think we'll have to wait and see. I get the sense that there's not a lot of hope that fundamentally things will change. I know there have been sort of like promises that have been made or offered, but we're going to have to wait and see how everything plays out, I think. And I think that sort of raises a bigger point about this work which is kind of uh depressing to talk about but like border militari militarization and um immigration policy punitive sort of criminalization of immigration is bipartisan right so the very policies that created this humanitarian crisis came to be under a democratic administration right bill clinton so 
I'm not super optimistic about changes. I I don't know. I think we'll have to wait and see what happens. But yeah. Mirsa, what do you think that we can continue doing to people be more aware about what's going on here in the U.S.-Mexico border? I think as Isabella said, like there is a lot of resources, there is a lot of materials online and, and information there that uh, people can do uh, to try to understand better what is going on. Uh, I think also there is organizations like us that are working in this issue and other organizations with uh, immigrant justice uh, that people can reach out. I know this is like a very hard subject, but uh, people can read and people can just learn. People can talk about it. And there is many ways uh, as students, as you are, like you can just reach out to organizations like this type and learn and help. Um, it's very important to people to know and there is very important to people to try to help if they can or do just to try to know the subject. There's many opportunities. There is talks that uh, organizations like us do and there is um, other type of programs. So any kind of involvement is good. Any uh, as, as long as people learn and understand and also realize uh, what is going on and why it's going on and uh, what what uh, they, they, I'm sure they will be finding a way to help uh, as far as they can um, in many ways. And sharing our content is one thing that they can support too. Or just there are many ways. And every person who wants to help is welcome. Now we've been discussing about the challenges, but also the work that you do in general. But now I want to ask you, what is the most satisfying part of your work, Mirza? Uh, well, it, it is the hardest part, but it's also the satisfying, like the most satisfying uh, thing to work with the family and then being able to help them with the end of the journey and their search. So sometimes uh, providing the bad news is 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 just a terrible situation. But but did you get to talk and you get to follow up with them and you get to to see them in a better place? I mean, it shifts to the desperation and the just uh, anxiety and like uh, them being sick until until they know. And then I mean, it feels even the tone of boys sometimes we get to meet them after that and and the way that they are at least they have the answer the it is a huge injustice but uh just the i think the hardest part is to be looking for years decades and uh it's torture it's making them sick it's making them giving them so many problems so to me to being able to see them after that It feels very good. It feels like uh, it feels like in the middle of everything. Uh, probably uh, they found the answers that without the existence of Colibri or organizations like us wouldn't wouldn't be able to get. So uh, and that we get to talk to them and to share with them and to just get to meet them better or closer is is 
and connect as a human. Uh, it, I think it feels really good. Thank you, Mirza. What about you, Isabella? Uh, yeah, I think obviously if we're able to give families closure, that's the most satisfying thing, right? Um, other than uh, finding somebody in detention or hearing that somebody has been found alive. I think those moments, you never know what's going to happen when you pick up the phone and you call somebody and when they say, oh, we found him, right? That's always a really satisfying feeling as well to know that somebody was found alive. But yeah, I think being able to give families closure and it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while, they'll express a lot of gratitude, which we don't always expect because it's such a tumultuous and difficult time when people get news. But I think when you're able to really speak with somebody and hear about how much relief and, and the comfort that they've been able to feel as a result of, of that work that is really painstaking and can take a really long time, that that's really satisfying. That's really rewarding. In my own experience, I think the most satisfying part is the gratefulness of the families that they feel accompanied in these times of grievance for them. And um, being part and being part of this support for the families is, uh, in my opinion, the most uh, uh, satisfying part of uh, uh, this work. Well, it is time now for us to say goodbye, but I want to thank you, Mirza and Isabella, for joining me today and for your incredible work. Thank you, Christian. Thank you for your work. <laughs> Don't forget about your incredible work. Yes, thank you, Christian. And it really has been great to have you have your experience and everything that you uh, brought to our team. And it's just amazing to connect with people. Thank you. Thank you both. The Kyuk School and the Kroc Institute taught me about human dignity and strategic peace building. And I kind of find a better example of what being a peace builder is all about, even more on American soil, where it can be easy to forget those around us who suffer. If you're wondering how you can help or become involved with the Colibri Center for Human Rights, you can visit its website at colibricenter.org. Also, Colibri, it's amid its annual fundraising campaign, Quantos Mas. So you can help by donating or buying its merchandise online. Thank you again, Isabella and Mirza, for joining me today and for allowing me to be part of your wonderful team. And thanks, everybody, for listening to our podcast. You've been listening to The CrocCast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our show, which will help more people to find us. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, Follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.